took us through in our confession. Chapter 2, dealing with God and the Holy Trinity. (coughs) God and the Holy Trinity. And Joey has gone through the attributes of God in chapters 1 and 2. And then in chapter 3, we considered last week the Trinity itself. I'm going to read that chapter, or that paragraph, but we're going to be focusing on the the last part of a sentence, which is after the last semicolon there, and I'll highlight that as we read through it, but this is the doctrine of the Trinity as spoken of in this paragraph. In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word, or Son, and the Holy Spirit of One substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. All infinite, without beginning. Therefore, but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations, and this is what we're focusing on, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and Him. And so, (coughs) excuse me, as we continue thinking about the Trinity, one of the things that often we say, which is true, is that the doctrine of the Trinity is a very difficult doctrine to understand. And as we gathered together for fellowship last Lord's Day and talked about these things, it's very, it's very true and prevalent among our conversations, right? Doctrine of the Trinity is very difficult to understand. And that's what the church has always confessed. Many of the brightest Theological minds in all of church history have said that the doctrine of the Trinity is the most difficult of Christian doctrines. It's the hardest to understand, but it is the richest to consider and to meditate upon. Now, I don't know if any of you have kept track. I've brought it up a couple of different times. The state of theology that Ligonier does. Okay? It's a study asking theological questions to either evangelical Christians or the community of America at large, and asking them what they believe concerning different religious principles. And it might be shocking to us, but in the things that we would think that broad evangelical Christianity would fall short of, such as maybe the doctrine of marriage, um, the doctrine of gender contained within the Bible, these are things we focus a lot on. Actually, there was a surprising amount of truth that people believe on these topics. But when you look at the doctrine of the Trinity, it's a very, very poor report. I believe it was 48% of people (coughs) said that they believed that Jesus Christ was the first created being. 48% of of what people would consider theologically conservative Christians in this country believe something that the ancient church and all of church history up until maybe the 1800s would have considered an absolute heresy that is not Christianity at all. Christians today are not able to articulate that God is 
one essence in three subsistences or persons, all of them being God. Rather, many people believe that the Father is somehow greater than the Son, that the Son is less of a God than the Father is, and the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force. Okay? <coughs> and there's a lot of confusion about this. And so that's why we think it's important to teach on. But the question I want to ask you, to get your feedback, why do you think, in our culture, these things are not believed as they ought to be believed? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's definitely part of it. Just the confusion of the doctrine itself and how to explain it properly. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. We're we're disconnected from the history, the theological history of the church in America. We we believe in more of an individualistic interpretation of Scripture. That whatever I see when I open my Bible, I, what I would propose to you is at least part of the problem. I think that you and Nicole both hit on true things. <coughs> is that we're consumed in our culture with with practical things, right? When we go to church, and I've heard people come to this church, which is fine. And say we want to hear more practical things. What, what to do in our day-to-day Christian life, right? If you go to a Christian bookstore, what is the primary thing that you typically see? It's shelves and shelves full of self-help, right? How I can have seven steps to a better marriage or a happier life or how I can get a better job or what I'm to trust in, right? And I think it's very well put. I can't remember the man's name that came up with this title, but American Christianity has often been characterized, and I think well, as moralistic therapeutic deism okay and what that means is it's moralistic primarily instead of being focused on god and what we believe it's about it's about morality what we do what is right and wrong therapeutic is that we come to church to make us feel better about ourselves the whole substance of our religion is how how god can interact with me to make me feel better okay in deism what is deism <coughs> It's a God, but more than that, deism is a belief that God created all things, but then stepped back, okay? So like somebody that creates a machine and then lets the machine run without any interference, okay? Where we believe in a God that the superintends, governs all things in the world, deism believes that God set things back. He's really disinterested in our lives, right? And so that characteristic of our American Christianity, I think, is the primary thing that feeds in to why we don't believe the Trinity as we ought to, because we don't think it matters. 
We think it's impractical. But I want to tell you today that that's a, a mischaracterization of the doctrine of the Trinity. We often think that it doesn't affect our normal everyday lives. It's just something that we have to believe ethereally. But the Christian church has always believed that the Trinity, as we just read, notice the language. The doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and the foundation of all our comfortable dependence upon Him. <coughs> this was really highlighted to me in something I heard this year. In the 17th century, there was a little book called The Practice of Piety. Okay? So it's a Puritan book okay, about how to live a pious life. Now, what we would expect as Americans was, would it be full, maybe, of the Ten Commandments and how to fulfill each of the Ten Commandments or something like that. But 50 pages at the beginning was an in-depth analysis of what we have been talking about for the last several weeks about the doctrine of God and the Trinity, with really no practical exhortations given. And this book, The Practice of Piety, <coughs> was one of the best-selling Christian books for like two centuries running. It was reprinted in several different languages, including American Indian languages, um, and spread throughout, throughout Christendom at the time. And it was seen as very important, but we, we have a contrast with that. And so, today, I, I want us to try to think about Scripture in a way maybe that we haven't before, and how the Trinity is the foundation of our communion and our comfortable dependence upon God. So, I'm going to ask the question, we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit. How is the Trinity the foundation of our communion with God? Let me, let me start us. The Trinity and the doctrine of it is the foundation of our communion with God because we see that God in eternity had communion, right? Now, if all the things we've been talking about about God are true, and what the Bible says about God is true, that He's immutable, He's unchangeable, right? He doesn't change in His being in essence. We have a difficulty if we consider God as a monad, Okay, creating the world, and then for us to have communion with Him. God, in eternity, did not have communion. But in the Scriptures, we see that eternally, God had communion with Himself in the three subsistences of the Trinity. Where do we read of such things as that? We get peaks of John, yeah. Well, John's a good answer. It's a right answer. John 1, let's go there. And while we don't get a, necessarily a peek at what that communion looked like in John, we certainly see the distinction and unity in the Godhead in John 1. Notice John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Notice verse 2. He, that is the Word, Jesus Christ, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 8. Taken by church history, rightly, to be talking about 
Christ Himself because Christ is considered and talked about as the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians and Colossians. And here we have God's wisdom itself in Proverbs chapter 8. And notice the, the communion that's talked about here. I'm going to read a, a longish section here because I think it's helpful. And we brought this up last week talking about the, um, the eternal begottenness of the Son, the eternal generation of the Son. Notice with me, verse 22 of Proverbs 8, the Lord possessed me. That, that word possessed, you might have a footnote there. Does anybody have it? What does it say? Fathered. Or fathered, yes. This is the way the ancient church typically read it. The Lord fathered me, possessed me at the beginning of His work, the first of His acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the earth before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before He had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the earth, when He established the heavens, I was there. When He drew a circle on the face of the deep, when He made firm the skies above, when He established the fountains of the deep, when He assigned to the sea its limits, so that the waters might not transgress His command, when He marked out the foundations of the earth. Now notice verse 30. Then I was beside Him, like a master workman. I was daily His delight, rejoicing before Him always, rejoicing in His inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Okay, So I think that we can see primarily the foundation of our communion with God. How can we commune with a being that is infinite and holy and separate from creation? How is that possible? That's a good question to ask. First and foremost, it's possible because in eternity, God had communion with Himself in the Godhead. God Himself is a being that can have communion. And that's not an over-philosophical thing to say. Yes, sister. I and the Father are one. Yes, absolutely. We read in John 17, don't we, that, that I'm going to go back to the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. So, as we consider communion with God, the Trinity being the foundation, it's in God's nature Himself, but we also see it in worship, don't we? Turn with, excuse me, turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. And what, I'm, what I mean here is that when we worship God, we worship Him in a Trinitarian fashion. We commune with God when we worship with Him. When we worship Him, rather. And we get a picture of this, especially between the Father and the Son, in Revelation chapter 5, and <coughs> verses 11 through 14. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and dominion. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in all the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and might forever and ever. We see here a picture of worship to God through Jesus Christ. 
that these saints singing praise to God in Revelation chapter 5 do so on the basis that Jesus Christ has made them right with God. But we worship God not just through the fact that Jesus Christ has done things for us, but we worship Him through spirit, don't we? The spirit of the living God is what God sent out and Jesus Christ sent out to come upon our hearts to make us new creations so that we would believe in what Jesus Christ has done for us, uniting us to him in faith so that we would worship God the Father. So it's not just in God's being that we see the elements of communion. We see it in our worship and in fact... Trinitarianism is the way in which God attaches us to him in worship. The way that we're able to worship him. It's only in the Spirit through Jesus Christ or through the Spirit in Jesus Christ to God the Father. (coughs) Can we think of any other ways that we can consider the doctrine of the Trinity as the foundation of our communion with God? Amen. Yes. Yes, yes. First John 1. First John 1. And, and notice the, the language of communion. Here. <clears throat> notice in... Oh, it... John writes long run-on sentences. Um... He's talking about Christ, and notice in verse 3, he says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, saying, We saw Jesus Christ, the apostolic witness. Okay, We proclaim that to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Okay? The doctrine of the Trinity is is baked into this, and it's the foundation of our fellowship. Notice in verse 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. And so, communion, we have worship, but I want to say, what ways do we have communion with God to help us think about this? We communion with God through our worship, through our prayer, through the, the listening of his word being preached and read. We have communion with God through our obedience, don't we? Which might be just another way of saying worship, okay? Um, our obedience. And I want us to notice that the Trinitarian formula, so to speak, or speaking of God's unity in diversity is often a way in which we hear the commands of God being given to us. And what I mean by that is in Matthew chapter 17, we had the pleasure of going over this a few months ago. Matthew 17, you remember the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus leads up his three chosen apostles on the mountain. And it's revealed to them the glory of Christ. And notice what God the Father says in verse 5. He was still speaking to them. Christ was still speaking to his apostles. When, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice 
from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. In our obedience to God, our communion to Him, how we live our lives as a sacrificial offering to Him, it's through the commands of the Father, certainly no doubt, but God Himself says, This is my Son, listen to Him. As the mediator of the new covenant, we have, we have a communion with God through that mediation, even through His commands of obedience to us. We'll turn to Matthew chapter 28 as well. To, to see the, the connection between Trinitarianism and obedience. Communion of obedience, I could say, maybe. Matthew 28, very well known, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But we even see a an emphasis on the Spirit at times. How many times do we read in the book of Revelation, listen what the Spirit says to the churches, right? At the end of Revelation, the evangelical call is the Spirit and the bride say, come, okay? That's what we say to all sinners. We're inviting them to commune with our God, to come to God, but it's through the Spirit, through the speaking of the Spirit, through the church, in the name of Jesus Christ, going to God the Father, okay? So, what I want to highlight through these simple points, and we can add to them if we can think of any more, is that our communion with God, all of our obedience, all of our worship, is founded upon the doctrine of the Trinity. Can't be set apart separate from it. This is how God has chosen to work in His world, so that we would have true communion with Him. And therefore, the doctrine of the Trinity should be held very closely by us and it should be guarded very carefully. Because if all of our communion with the Trinity depends on this doctrine, then when we start to tinker with it, we're going to tinker with our communion with God, or how we perceive our communion with God anyway. Okay, And I think even more clearly, our comfortable dependence upon Him. Trinity is the foundation of our comfortable dependence upon God, okay? Now, we have comfortable dependence upon God as sinners because of the gospel and the gospel alone, right? But the gospel is a Trinitarian gospel. And it can't be divorced from Trinitarian theology. Now, we can see throughout many pages of the Bible, salvation is dependent upon believing the doctrine of the Trinity rightly. And I don't mean that you have to have all your I's dotted in order for you to be saved, but there's a connection between what we believe about God and our salvation. I mean, let's just turn to a couple passages. John 17, 3. (coughs) The overarching text that we have here, the comfortable dependence that we have on God, knowing that, that He is for us and not against us, that we can trust Him. It's founded upon the doctrine of the Trinity, this difficult doctrine. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, 
Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that He may glorify you since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given. And this is eternal life. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Whom you have sent. And we have to notice something here. We're, we're talking about the only true God. We're talking about unity. We're also talking about, in some aspect, diversity within the Godhead, these subsistences that God sent His only begotten Son. He joined to Himself a human nature without mixing these two natures together, without making a third being that we might have salvation. And Christ Himself, our mediator, says that eternal life is knowing God. It's knowing God. This is probably a primary text on the mind of Athanasius in the ancient church when he read, probably, if you read the email, the shocking language of the ancient church that if somebody doesn't believe the doctrine of the Trinity, there's no eternal life in them. What other texts do we have that talk about salvation, our comfortable dependence upon Him, rising from the doctrine of the Trinity? being built upon the doctrine of the Trinity. We see it in the history of redemption, don't we? In the history of the redemption. So, as Brother Joey's been talking in the confusing language, okay, that God eternally begot His Son, eternally generated His Son. Because God exists in eternity, eternity means that there's no succession of time, Right? God experiences no succession of time like we do. And therefore, if the Son is His Son, He wasn't begotten in a succession of time like our sons and daughters are begotten, but He eternally was begotten by the Father. But the Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. Spirit meaning spiration or breathed out by the Father and the Son. And we see this played out in the history of redemption as we experience in succession of time, don't we? We see at a certain point in time, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His own Son, truly begotten into the world as a human being. And then, when Christ ascends into heaven, He pours out His Holy Spirit upon the church. The Father and the Son pours out the Holy Spirit upon the church. And what I want to highlight is that that doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation for the things that we believe. Um, Let's go to John chapter (coughs) 1 again. John chapter 1. As as we consider, once again, the Trinity is very practical because all of our comfortable dependence is built upon it. Notice, it's a very well-known text. I'm going to read verses 14 through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace in truth, John bore witness about him and cried out, This is the one whom I said, He comes after me, bef- <laughs> after me, ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Now notice verse 17 and 18. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God or the only begotten God, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Now, think about what we've talked about. If if having salvation is knowing who God is, 
It is only Christ that can reveal the Father to us. He came in flesh so that He could reveal who the Father is. He Himself knows the Father perfectly and intimately. Our salvation depends on our knowledge of the Father, and Jesus Christ has shown it to us. Let's turn to John 14.6 to see the same thing. John chapter 14. I'm going to repeat myself. The foundation of our comfortable dependence is the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. Not that alone, but the doctrine of the Trinity. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him in the person of Jesus Christ. So, notice... The doctrine of the Trinity, you come to God through me. Um, and then, I just want to emphasize this, that in 1 John, specifically chapter 5, we see many warnings that if we don't believe the doctrine of Christ rightly, and therefore the doctrine of the Trinity, that salvation is, is built upon a correct understanding of these things. And I hope you know what I mean by that. Notice in verse 23, or let's start in verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. Notice, who denies the Father and the Son? Whoever confesses the Son, oh, I'm sorry, no one who denies the Son has the Father. I'm reading from 1 John, did I say chapter 5? Forgive me. I'm in chapter 2. I'm in chapter 2. Forgive me. I have two references side by side, and I'm, I mistook it. Yeah, 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Okay? So so notice the connection there that Jesus Christ very closely puts together. As he says in John, I dwell in the Father and the Father in me. To believe in the Son is to believe on the Father. It's the foundation of our comfortable dependence. Now, chapter 5. Chapter 5. And again, in verse 20, that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, His Son, Jesus Christ. So, God came to reveal Himself through the Son, but I want us to notice something else that gives us a bridge to the last thing I have in my notes about our comfortable dependence. It's not only that we know God and know salvation through the Son, it's that we have union with God through the Son. We've talked about many times. The Apostle Paul nearly a hundred times in his epistles uses the language in Christ to refer to our salvation as coming from our true, real union with Him. And our union with Him is a Trinitarian union. Now, 
I'd ask you that question. Where do we go in the Bible to see that our being connected to our mediator, the Son of God, comes through a Trinitarian way? Miss Rachel. Mm. Oh, amen. That's great. That's a wonderful text. Yes. I'll read that again. 1 Peter 1, 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Again, this history of redemption that reveals the Trinity and its eternal relations, it shows up in our, in our lives, doesn't it? <coughs> I turn us to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 12, talking about the church in particular, but for as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Notice verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. The body that we're baptized into is Jesus Christ, and it's done by the Holy Spirit Himself. He comes in our conversion and connects us, unites us in a mysterious way with with God. That we can have communion and fellowship with Him. No man has communion with God except for through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit must come into our hearts. But Jesus Christ, he, He shows that union to be complete because He's our high priest in heaven too, is He not? That everybody who's been baptized into His body, He has, as the Old Testament would put it, has His our names written on his breastplate and on his shoulder pads, or as Isaiah would put it, engraved onto the palms of his hands. We're truly united with him. And the foundation of our comfortable dependence then is that Jesus Christ really is our mediator. He truly mediates for us. We can truly say that he is the second Adam. Just as we inherited all of Adam's guilt and shame from the transgression that he committed, we are truly united through the Spirit to Jesus Christ who brings us to the Father through His intercession, through His perfect righteousness and obedience. Can we think of any other ways that our comfortable dependence upon God is found on the doctrine of the Trinity? There are probably many things we can discuss today. Brother. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Oh, amen. Yes. And we could spend a lot of time, it's a good point, brother, going through how many times in Scripture we have all three members of the Trinity listed as, as being active in our salvation. Do we have any other thoughts? Amen. Yes. Any questions? Okay.
And, and again, the point of what I want to look at and the challenge that I have for us today is when we think about the Trinity and it's difficult and it's hard and we accept that. Not to leave it aside because it's difficult or hard and to think it's impractical and not useful to us. The Bible says it's of prime usefulness to us. Our understanding of the Trinity is, is the foundation of our comfortable dependence and our communion with God. And, and I, I hope that we would be challenged to try to think that way. To see this as a beautiful and glorious doctrine that God has revealed. And it's by the means of the Trinity that He brings us to Himself. Alright? Okay, I'm going to pray for us. Father, we come before you. Uh, I thank you for revealing to feeble and weak minds something we can't comprehend. Um, we can't even come close to comprehending God. But you've given us true knowledge in your word about yourself. And you have pointed to this doctrine as something that should increase our hope. This should give us comfortable dependence. This should give us hope that we have true and real communion with the God that created all things, that is separate from all things, that is holy and undefiled by sin. God, but we know we can because you sent your Son. We know you can because you have sent your Spirit into our hearts to help us, to make us believe in your Son. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would, you would grow us in our hope through this wonderful doctrine. In Jesus' name, amen.